When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. From Sugar 23, I'm Angela Ledgewood and this is Lit Up. I started dancing in COVID to help with the isolation and the lack of energy. I'm trying to get up every morning, put music on, dance. I dance with my boyfriend when we're making dinner. When we were dancing one night, it made me think of a fellow dancer, and that's Elizabeth Gilbert. Liz is the author of the global sensation Eat, Pray, Love, among many other books. And I wanted to share a past episode with you that's so special to me. It's my conversation with her before the pandemic back in 2020. We talk about how to become an interesting woman and why being honest is sometimes better than being good. We also talk about her latest novel, City of Girls. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. I did want to ask you if you danced this morning. I have not danced yet today. Um, and that is unusual because I do usually dance every morning. Um, but I was in a bit of a hurry getting out of the house. So it's it's on my list of things that have to be done by the end of the day. <laughs> well, I feel like getting joy back into our lives is part of what this book is about. It definitely allowed me to tap back into being a young woman in her 20s or like late teens discovering the world again. Why was it important for you to examine these, I mean, in quote, promiscuous girls? I don't think you have to put it in quotes. They're totally promiscuous girls. (laughs) Let's just call it what it is. (laughs) Because I don't think of that as a derogatory term. You know, it's just a, a describer for what they were doing. But so, yeah, City of Girls is a novel about New York City theater world in the 1940s. And it's told as a memoir um, written by a woman in her 90s, reflecting back on her wild and very sexual youth in New York during World War II. Um, And she gets, she moves to New York when she's 19 and she gets tangled up with a bunch of showgirls and dancers and actresses and theater folk and um, discovers that there's a whole different attitude about sex in that world than what she had been raised to believe. And she just throws herself at New York City as a predator more than as prey. And that's a story that I wanted to tell about certain seasons that can happen in a woman's life where she's on the hunt for sex and she's flexing her power. She's flexing her beauty um, and satisfying her desire and her curiosity 
I didn't want to write a book that was naively sex positive um, because I I also wanted to talk about the consequences that can come with that behavior. And certainly Vivian and her friends have consequences to their behavior, but they survive them as many of us have. And there's a line in the book when she's older and still a very sexual woman. She's a sexual woman for her entire life, which is also a story that I wanted to tell. I didn't want to tell a story about a loose girl who then gets, you know, like straight marries and all of that is behind her. I I want to tell a story about a woman who, for whom sensuality and sexuality is important for the entirety of her life. And there's a point later in her middle age where she's still very active sexually and says that her freedom is more important to her than her safety. And I feel like that is a message that we don't hear very often um, on either, on in, from any political corner. You know, there's the, the deeply conservative old-fashioned way of telling the story of female sexuality, which is the wages of sin is death. And if you dare to have desire, you're going to end up under the wheels of the train or poisoned um, or, or suicide or cast out of society. Don't you dare, like, don't you dare have desire. And then there's a more contemporary story, which is that you are in danger, you are in danger, you are in danger every single minute of your life, you are in danger. And and then there's somewhere in there what actual female desire looks like, which I think is more robust, wild, messy, and difficult to categorize than either of those tales. There's also the unconventional relationships which you examine. And I think we're more familiar with these the different roles people can take on now, but it felt for so long or that we're still fighting for language to put on certain types of love and why do we even need to categorise them? But we've had to for so long. Was that something you were trying to examine? Well, I'll tell you, I actually forgot about this until right now, but one of the origins of this book. And like most of my books, it has multiple fathers and mothers, you know, like various ideas and strands and inspirations that all kind of coalesce. And then suddenly I want to write this particular novel. But one of the reasons that I want to write this book is that after I wrote The Signature of All Things, my last book, which was about a 19th century, um, a novel about a 19th century female botanist who happens to spend her entire life as a virgin, with a lot of sexual desire that never, ever gets met and that she has to sublimate into her intellectual work. Um, And I did, at that point, I wanted to write a book about a woman who cannot and does not get satisfaction from sex, intimacy, or marriage, but has an incredibly satisfying life anyway. Um, And that's the story that I wanted to tell. And after I wrote that, somebody on Facebook wrote to me and said, I dare you to write a love story. (laughs) I love your fiction, but I've never seen you in fiction tell a real love story. Can you give us a love story? And I ruminated on that for years, trying to figure out how I could tell a love story that I would believe, that I would believe, you know? And so a few things that I knew about that, you know, this book is a love story, but I knew that it would have to convince me. And one of the things I knew would have to happen for that to exist is that it would have to be a love story between people who are older, who are in middle age. Um, I feel like it's very hard for me to believe love stories of the young. (laughs) I mean, those are stories that were always told, but I'm like, I was young, you know, and I just know, I'm like, 
you're not ripened yet. Your heart hasn't been kicked around yet enough to actually be ready for how complicated love is. And I wanted it to be different from what we would expect because in my life, my great love stories have been different from what I expected. They just haven't followed the pattern of what we were instructed a love story looks like. And when I tried to do it that way, it did not work. So it took me a while to to come up with the story and I don't want to reveal too much, but you'll have to read the book and see. I know. <laughs> so many of my questions, I have to be careful because I don't want to reveal because there are so many twists and turns. But one of the lines that what you said just spoke to that was, I have never loved the people I was supposed to love. Yeah, there you go. And when I read that, I just, I highlighted and sat with it and thought, I've just been thinking a lot about the rational versus the irrational and the head and the heart. And another part in the book, how when a friend meets someone or they're talking about their fiance and they just keep saying how nice a man they are. (laughs) Vivian says, be warned. When a woman starts talking about how nice a man is, she's not in love. (laughs) And also at a certain point in a woman's life, we can get kind of off track and we think now is the time to do something right. or the loves I've had have been too passionate and they've they've all ended. Therefore, mm-hmm. I should look for some other type of love or companionship. Yeah. And the other way has its own cracks too. And therefore the conclusion is dot, 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 question mark, you know, All I see everywhere I look in my life and the lives of everyone I know are people trying to solve love and desire and cobbling together in their own lives the very best that they can do given how ungovernable all of that is and how contradictory our desires are that we want passion and we want safety. We want stability and we want a wild ride. And tomorrow we want something else and... The next day, the person that we're with wants something else. I have a friend who's a therapist who has a great line uh, that desire is the design flaw in the human condition. It really wreaks havoc with our lives. And I see people trying to solve sex and love in so many different ways. And, And I just stand on the sidelines watching them applauding, saying, good try. Like, okay, okay, that's how you're going to do it. Okay, great. Like, you know, I have friends who are in long term monogamous marriages where all desire has left long ago and they've let it go. And and it's not that they delight in that. It's just that that's the deal they've made. The deal they've made is this person is important to me. My family is important to me. And I'm just going to let that part of my life not just not exist. And that's the deal that they've made to try to figure out how to solve sex. But it's not simple for any of us. <laughs> it's just a very weird experience to be a human being in this body and have a rational mind and have an irrational everything else. Um, So good luck out there to any of you who are trying to solve this in any of the ways that you are. Don't think anybody's got it figured out because we don't. I feel for Vivian at some point though, she is at peace with who she is and she understands that this satisfaction she wants from having lovers and the things she gives up in terms of having, you know, one steady partner. I love her story because we haven't, we don't hear women's stories where they're satisfied with their choices. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's the biggest 
thing you can do as a human is just appreciate you've tried and lost and loved, but here you are. (laughs) (laughs) And not be regretful. Yeah, yeah. that that level of self-acceptance, you know, you see there's a part of the novel where Vivian does her level best to try to be the kind of girl she was raised to be. And it is, I have a friend who's like that, those chapters of the book felt like she was put on an iceberg and sent out to sea. And it's, and it, he said, it, I was so scared I reading it. I was so worried. I was too. so scared. It was like, oh no, <laughs> no. But, but I've also done that, you know, I mean, the, I think that the defining line in this book is where she says, you know, I tried very hard to be a good girl, but it's not true to my nature. And I decided that I was a good person, if not a good girl. And that I think is a story that we don't see very often about women, as you say, but it reflects my own experience in the world and the experience of a lot of women I know. I think what is so special about the book is also this understanding of when you're a young woman, you can hurt people. Yeah, I mean, and not necessarily when you're a young woman, but I've definitely, the book made me reflect on things I had done because I thought my um, desire was more important than other people's feelings or that because I was honest about those feelings, it somehow absolved me of hurting people. I mean, that was the biggest thing I learned. (laughs) I'm just laughing and thinking, game recognized game, babe. (laughs) But, and there's this fabulous actress, uh, figure Edna in in the book and she is older and wiser and when she sees Vivian I think she sees something of herself in this younger woman but there is something that happens between them and I think for the younger woman to have um, overstepped the boundaries mm-hmm. it's such it just reminded me of the slap in the face oh. we get when we're young when you have to sit in your own mess yes and how, why was that so important? <laughs> I feel like I've been reliving oh, my messes, which oh. has been so helpful, actually. Look, if you're very, very wise and evolved and you came to this earth as the 72nd incarnation of a Tibetan Lama and you just know how to be good and compassionate and to cause no harm and to live a life of ahimsa, then you'll read this book and be like, I don't know what any of this is about. But if you're the rest of us... <laughs> Then you came here and much of your life has been about figuring out how, figuring out how to not do harm. You know, um, it's, you know, and a lot of this novel is me working out my own youth and my own like shame that I had to, to go through where, you know, how do you be free What's the definition of free speech? Like you're, you're, you're allowed to swing your arm as far as it goes before it hits somebody else in the face, right? So Vivian's just flailing her arms around in all directions because she's experimenting with her freedom, with her desire, with her great beauty, with her power, um, and, and with her unbridled freedom. And, and it's not until her fist connects with somebody else's face that she has the slightest inkling of herself as a person who can do danger in the world. And and for a lot of us, the only way we realize that is by 
having done it. And, and, you know, that's a story I wanted to tell too, because I feel like so many stories about women in love and sex, it's all about women being victimized, um, or mistreated, or, you know, the, the rom-com story about women is always about the girl being harmed, you know, by some, some mean or callow man. And all she is, is all she wants is true love. And here comes somebody and he's callow and he's thoughtless. And now she's been injured. And hopefully Mr. Darcy will show up and be the right one after that. Don't let us forget that women can cause tremendous damage and harm to themselves and others in the world when they fling themselves uh, into desire in a way that connects with somebody else's face. So I didn't want to tell that kind of a romantic story. I wanted to tell a story about a woman who does harm and and to show what callowness looks like. You know, the first parts of the, this book where she arrives in New York City and she just goes on such a bender because she's been so repressed her entire life in like polite waspy society and private schools and Vassar and, and a nice family and sailing lessons and camp and all these sort of restrictions. And then she enters into this freewheeling world where it really does look like there are no consequences and nobody is monitoring her behavior for the first time in her life. And it's such a joy ride. And those pages are very, I wanted them to go down like a champagne cocktail. It just feels really fun and fizzy and, you know, and that's great, but, oh, right. So callowness is a kind of ignorance, you know, and, and she's moving with a kind of ignorance and, until she hurts, until she, she causes pain and then has to go through the depression and, and the learning that comes from that. Well, there's a line in the book that speaks directly to that. It's just that idea that time does not heal all wounds mm-hmm. and realising that as an adult when you tried and someone has said, you hurt me too badly... I have to let you go and there's nothing you can do. Nothing you can do. And that is one of the most painful things in the entire world because how do you forgive yourself when somebody you have harmed will not or cannot forgive you? How do you move on from there? That's a very, very tricky situation to be in because what you want is to be absolved by the other And they can't give you that because they don't have it in them. And they're not required to. They're not required to. You know, people's, um, I I remember when I was in a situation like this once where I was like, I just want this person to forgive me. And I've, I've, you know, gone on my knees and I've made amends and I've, I've done everything that I can. And how do I get this person to forgive me? And and a wiser, older, of course, (laughs) woman said to me, People's opinions about you are their property. They are entitled to keep them. You would not go into his house and steal his laptop. You do not get to go into his mind and steal his opinion about you. That is his. That is his property. You leave him alone and you let him have that. And I and then she said, How many times have you reached out? You know, asking for forgiveness. And I said, like three or four times, and he never responds. And she said, Well, now what you're doing is cheating at the game of how life goes. If you were playing checkers, would you be allowed to make four moves in a row? No. You're allowed to make one move and then you wait and they get to make a move. And if they don't ever, then the game is over. (laughs) Stop 
going back in. It's not fair. You're cheating. Stop. Leave them alone. And and to just have to walk away from that and be like, but if I could just find another way to say it, if I could find another way to say it to convince them, no, 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 no. This one's, this game's over. Um, and And that's extraordinarily painful. And what you're left with is how do I find mercy for myself when mercy has not been offered? And that's spiritual work. You know, that's that's deep, deep human living spiritual work right there. <laughs> yep. Yeah, no, that's like a that's a bow down. That's what my friend Gigi calls a carve out. That's Ooh. one of those moments where it's like you just have to be carved out by that, you know, and and gutted. And it's and then the next the next step is, you know, you hit your knees and you just turn it over and 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 you offer it up as one of these things. This is a really good place for you to learn that you're not in control of everything. Um, and then you turn it over and just say, I, I, there's nothing more I can do. Um, can I forgive myself? Can I show mercy on myself? And I, there's a line in the book where Vivian says that somebody else is in a, in a position where they can't forgive themselves for, for a, a character flaw of their own. And she, she's overcome by this sense of compassion for that person in that moment because she knows firsthand what it feels like to be trapped in your own dilemma and not be able to do anything about it and not be able to fix it. And I think the best use of that pain is to be able to sit with anybody who's in that same position and feel compassion for them. You know, and just say like, I know what it feels like to not be able to fix this. I am, I too am you. And um, here we are, you know, I'm, let's find mercy somehow. And I think it's the deciding to sit in that and learn from it is what makes people and Vivian, she becomes interesting, I hope, to herself. When Edna this fabulous actress says to Vivian, the thing you don't understand about yourself, Vivian, is that you're not an interesting person. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that the most savage takedown? It's so savage and it's so true. It's so well done in that (laughs) moment. But when I was reading it, even I thought Vivian hopefully will become interesting. Yeah. But that's her... She has to find herself worthy of that. And at that point, she knows she's not. And maybe that's the hardest part because she thinks she is. Why was it so important to have Vivian's virginity lost (laughs) in such a fabulously comic way? I just love so much that, you know, it's she's my favorite with, scene I've ever written so in my good. entire life, I, mean, I have to say. <laughs> she's with all the showgirls ahead of time. It's just the best moment when I think Gladys mm-hmm. says, you can't lose your virginity with someone you like. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, you can imagine them just all around being so wonderful saying, oh God, how terrible, <laughs> never, which is so counter to the narrative that we still have you know, drilled into us and even imagining what I'd say to my niece or someone, a a young woman I care about. Okay. I'll tell you why I wanted to write that scene that way, because I feel like every losing virginity scene that I've ever read is either incredibly traumatic or unrealistically romantic. And 
and I didn't want to write. And it's very hard. How do you figure out how to tell a losing virginity scene that is neither traumatic nor romantic? <laughs> and then what it has to be then is comic. Um, and, and a kind of a, uh, an exchange, like a very, like a very kind of bloodless, literally exchange, um, an arrangement that has that these two people decide to do to just take care of this thing and get rid of it. And what I, I love that, like, it's, it's the exact opposite again of, of what you're told about how sacred your virginity is, what these showgirls recognize and what they're able to give to Vivian and helping her get rid of her virginity is that this thing is a burden. This thing is a burden. Once you, once you've gotten rid of it, it's going to start to get good, you know, like get just, just, and, and the burden isn't just, you know, this, it's, it's all that's freighted upon the idea of virginity as a burden. It's a burden to say that this thing should only be given in the most precious circumstances and you can only give this away once. And, and there's that terrible idea that once it's gone, you've lost something holy and sacred about yourself. And these girls are like, ugh, no, just get rid of it. Like, just get rid of it so that you can now go out and figure out how to play with sex, um, which, you're going to want to do and you're going to need to do. So like, you know, let's, let's take care of this on Saturday morning. <laughs> At 10 a.m. At 10 a.m. <laughs> We've got somebody who'll do this for you, you know, like just, and, and I thought that that losing a virginity story was much more about female friendship than it was about male-female relationships um, because that was an act of friendship, real friendship and camaraderie that those girls offered Vivian. What I also love in the book, well, obviously you live in a neighborhood that's similar to where Vivian ends up. Block away I'm from where Vivian ends up. I'm trying to look at how much we yeah. can give away. Yeah. But she has this gorgeous friendship with Marjorie. Can you talk about how important it was to create these female characters that are such great friends and they end up... I do think New York allows people to become eccentric in the very best way. It's mm -hmm. why I love being here. But I've also, I mean, I'm 38 now, but the female friendships are the, the things that have rooted my life in the most, in the best way. Like I realise now that even the relationships that will come and go in some way, they are the bedrock of everything and that friendship and the friendships in the book and relationships, um, it was so wonderful to see the feelings that I've had and the joy that other women have given me reflected back to me in literature. I sort of purport to have this be a book about sex and desire, and it is, but it's by the end, what I hope that people feel is that it's the, the real love story in this book are these female friendships, these long, decades-long, rich, nourishing female friendships. That's, I mean, I'm turning 50 in a couple weeks, and when I think about what I wanted this year to be for me, this my 50th year, it's a celebration of that. It's a celebration of the fact that I've got friendships that are now 40 years old, 30-year friendships, 20-year friendships, um, deep, deep friendships with extraordinary women. And we've seen each other through every kind of failure <laughs> that you could possibly have. Such shame, such loss, such resilience. And what I've spent this year doing is taking each one of my dearest female friends on a trip where the 
So I went to Mexico in January with my best friend from when I was nine. And I went to Hawaii with a friend I've had for 20 years. I'm going to Europe this summer with a friend I've had for 20 years. I've um, rented a beach house for my best friend from college and we'll be doing that. And I'm going to France. I take, I'm, I don't want to have a big party. I just want to spend time with with each one of these people doing something that she would love um, mm. that's very specifically tailored to her as a celebration of this extraordinary thing. So th- I, I think that spirit has to infect this book because it's such an important part of my life. And they are unconventional friendships because these women are living in the 1950s, but they're not living conventional 1950s lives, largely because they're in New York City. <laughs> and I, got, I, I had a wonderful time kind of researching bohemian lifestyles in New York and Greenwich Village. And, and you know, we think of the 1960s as having been the birth of a certain kind of freedom, but there have been people who've been living eccentric lives outside of convention, especially in New York forever. And one of my favorite moments in the book is when, when Vivian reflects on the 1960s and says how much she loved it, even though she was a middle-aged woman by then and, and she should have been complaining about the breakdown of society. She said, I was never a big fan of society anyway. And, um, and But she says, my friends and my community, we were already doing all of this. Um, and when I did research for this book and got to speak to women in their 90s who had been showgirls and actresses and dancers, that emboldened me to be able to tell this story because they had never lived conventional lives. And there was one 95-year-old former showgirl who um, had been John Wayne's girlfriend and who had been a, a dancer at the Stork Club back in the 1940s who knew Walter Winchell. She was this amazing woman who I met who still lives in the same apartment on the Upper West Side that she moved into in 1952 and is still so jaw-droppingly beautiful, this six-foot-tall swan of a woman. And I said to her, you never got married, you never had children. Did you miss that? Did you wish that you had done that? And she, exact quote, 95-year-old woman sitting her in her rent control apartment, looked at me and said, did I miss getting married? She said, who the hell wants to fuck the same man for 60 straight years? And I was like, whoa, like I can write this book now. That was the last interview that I did before I sat down and wrote that book because she validated every one of these characters who I dreamed up because she was that. There are two parts in the book that I'm wondering if you can help reconcile for me. And one is this idea that, um, you know, we often think sex is a shortcut to intimacy and or we confuse the two. So thinking about that versus this idea that Vivian needs to be satisfied in these ways and that she has a, a hunger for sex and that she understands about herself and yet she also acknowledges that the intimacy she's craving might not come from that. How did you manage to have one character understand these two things? Yeah, there's a there's a line in the book where somebody asks her about her sexual encounters because and she's the way she's solved that is that she has basically anonymous sex with strangers. She's there's a nice bar that she goes to in a nice hotel and she sits there and reads a novel and drinks a couple martinis and every once in a while a man will approach her and she'll decide whether or not to engage with him. And that's how she finds her partners. And and it's risky, um, but she's refined it and finessed it as best she can to get what she needs. 
And somebody asks her in the book, does that make you happy doing that? And she really considers the question. She's an old enough woman by that point to know herself well enough and to, to have enough depth to really consider, does having sex with anonymous men make me happy? And what she comes up with is no, but it makes me satisfied. And I think there's a distinction between those two words in her life as a novelistic character, but I, I, I got that. I, I felt like I waited as I typed that. I didn't know the answer to the question when somebody said, does this make you happy? I sat there with my hands on the keyboard and I was like, Vivian, I'm going to need you to answer this for me. And I and it really felt like a channeling and that's what came out. No, but it makes me satisfied. Her happiness comes from her friendships, her fa- like her family, not her biological family, but the family that she's created in New York of, of her people, her tribe, the child who she's helping raise, the, the work that she does that brings her an amazing amount of, of joy in recognizing that she has a craft and she's good at it, serving the, the people who, who her work serves. Living in New York City makes her happy. All sorts of things make her happy. But as she tries to explain to this person, there's something within me that is very dark and she doesn't mean sinful. Um, she means deep, hidden, ancient, animal and it can only be satisfied this way. And I found a way to make sure that it gets satisfied. And if I didn't have that satisfied when I need it, it would be difficult for me to be happy. So she divides that between what she needs to be satisfied and what she needs to be happy. And her recognition is that it's, it's perhaps imperfect, but it's hers, you know? And there's an acceptance of this is how I'm doing it. This is how I've solved this. And I... And that's the best I've got. I don't think many people really examine themselves in that way, which is why I loved her so much, because all the questions she asks herself and comes up with an answer that feels very like she has done the interrogation of herself to be truthful no, I, well, I'm glad to hear that because that's why we call art the humanities because yes. it like serves up a little bit of a, a mirror for your own humanity. And I think how often are women allowed to ponder what would make them satisfied? Satisfaction is deep. It's a deep cave. It's dark. It's primal. Happiness is what we're always being told to look for. Um, And I think of happiness as as a much lighter, sparkly kind of energy that's also very difficult to sustain every single day. But how often are women given permission to examine what would actually satisfy you? Um, I have a friend who does a lot of really amazing body work and energy work with women. And she said, there's the kind of womanhood that's purported, that we're purported to want in society, which is all about being good and finding partnership and then being a good mom and then you know being good in your family and being good in your community and all of that. And she said, but my experience with women and women's actual primal desire is that if there's one word that actually defines what a woman wants, it is more. <laughs> <laughs> more. We're hungry. We're hungry. We're famished. We're full of yearning. We're emotional. We're sexual. We're sensual. And that 
more. I want more than this is always suppressed because it's such a violation of what will keep culture stabilized. You know, the thing that keeps culture stabilized is women taking that desire for more and suppressing it so that they can be good and so that they can be the building blocks of society and so that they can take care of other people and so that they can raise responsible children. And so like we kind of, if, if culture is to continue, we need women to not want more, you know? Um, but the reality is that there's a growling hunger inside me and every single woman I know And it has a voice and that voice just says, more. (laughs) And so what Vivian has been able to do is satisfy that, that sort of beast part of her that wants more. She's figured out a way to do it and it's imperfect, but but she's found it. Do you feel that each book or each project starts with some type of transformation creatively that you want to go on or how does the process work for you? It depends. I mean, there's books that I write that are conclusions, you know, so Big Magic is a book that that is very much like, these are my conclusions, you know, these are my conclusions about creativity. I've been doing this my entire life. Here's what I've noticed. Use this if it's helpful. Disregard if, it, if it's not, you know, thunk. It's kind of like a, um, a treatise, you know, um, in Big Magic, I was not trying to an- I was not trying to ask questions. I was answering them because one part of my life where I feel like I, for some reason, I think we each, if we're lucky, we get like maybe one tiny little piece of life that makes sense to us that we don't have to struggle over. <laughs> and for me, how to live a creative life without undue suffering, without courting an enormous amount of misery, where you can feel like you're you can actually enjoy um, the creative process, uh, has been something that for some reason has always kind of made sense mm-hmm. to me. And um, and you know, after having, I mean, I think Big Magic was my seventh book, and I felt like by that point, okay, I think I've done this enough that I can actually claim some mastery, which I think is also really important for women to do at a certain point in your life, which is to say, uh, you know what? I'm actually a master at this. <laughs> I'm master at this. I know how to do this really well. I've been doing this for a long time. And my 20 or 30 years um, have taught me some things and I'd like to share that with you. And I think it's okay to lay claim to that. I don't think it's okay to lay claim to that when you're 19, but I think you can do it when you're in your 40s and 50s. And and if you've got a track record that supports it, why not? You know, um, My other books, I think, are about me trying to solve these dilemmas of my own character that I have not mastered and sometimes get to the point where I feel like I cannot master parts of myself that I'm powerless over, parts of myself that I try to govern and they refuse to stay governed. You know, what are we to do with those much messier bits of ourselves? And so I think City of Girls is about that. How are we to deal with our desires and our failures and our shame um, and our longings and what what are we going to call intimacy now? And um, so it's it's a book about a woman question trying to question her way, living the questions of her own lives, um, and not purporting to be any kind of an expert, just a human being doing her level best. After you pray, love, because it feels like that was a book about what you're talking about, and obviously you were that woman then. Since that, what are the leaps that have have evolved even from that understanding? Because for so many of us reading that book was so profound because you were the one 
running the race ahead mm-hmm. so we might have courage <laughs> to run behind you. <laughs> Come on, girls! <laughs> and, and for men too, I'm mm-hmm. sure, who read it. It mm-hmm. was just about a lot of courage. But I'm sure that you're a different woman now than you were then. What do you think some of the biggest transformations have been since that time? It's a deepening of truth. You know, the epigraph for, for Eat, Pray, Love is tell the truth, tell the truth, tell the truth, which is something that um, my best friend Cheryl said to me while I was absolutely falling apart in my divorce because I that was the one thing I couldn't do because I was trapped in trying to be good and trying to not hurt anybody and trying to be a people pleaser and trying to somehow, how am I going to get out of this marriage without there being any harm to anyone, which is what made that marriage, that divorce so destructive. My God, we could have shaved two years of hell out of our lives if I had just been able two years prior to just start where we finished, you know, start where the only thing left standing in the room is truth and just say, I do not want to be in this marriage anymore. I want to get out of here as soon as I can. This is what I have to do now. This is not working for me. I am very sorry. How are we going to end this? This can't, this is unsustainable and not viable. And it's pointless to go to therapy because I already know this to be true. Let's just close it out. You know, I'm out. How are you going to cope now? How am I going to cope now? What's the best thing? I could have spared, God, I could have spared the both of us so much pain, but I didn't know how to do that. I know how to do it now because now I know that that is the merciful way to do it. Um, that truth is is the only merciful way to do it. So I think that what, if I look back at the difference between me and the difference between me now and the difference between me on the last pages of Eat, Pray, Love, what I was struck by when I went back and read that, because I hadn't read Eat, Pray, Love in 10 years since it was written and the 10-year anniversary came out and the publisher asked me to reread it and write a foreword. After a decade, what struck me, what saddened me when I read the book was how limited I was still keeping myself. In the pages of Eat, Pray, Love, there are a number of instances. There's a great deal of embarrassment that I express about the fact that I'm doing this, a great deal of shame about having left this marriage, a great deal of self-consciousness about this is frivolous. Um, me going on this journey is, um, is, I'm sorry, but I have to do it, but it's, I know I'm not being responsible right now. There's a number of points in the book where I say, I allude to some sort of sense that I still have that, that I'm supposed to actually be settled down. And, and, but I just have to go do this one last wild thing. And then I promise there's actually a line at the end of the Italy section that breaks my heart when I read it 10 years later, where I said, I promise that someday I will become a responsible, stable adult person, but I can't do it right now. Just give me one year and then I promise I'll settle down again. Just give me one year. I really need this. And I read that and I was like, you had so much right, Liz. (laughs) You had so much right, 32-year-old Liz, about what you needed and you were so wrong about this. You were so wrong about this. The only mistake that I made at the end of Eat, Pray, Love was ending it was saying, okay, now my journey of self-discovery is over and now I'm going to get married and now I'm going to be better at domesticity because I've had this experience and now I'm going to settle down. That was my error. I don't regret it. I loved those this beautiful human being who I got to spend 12 years with. But I, that was me trying again to be a good girl. And that's always where I go wrong. That's always where I go wrong. So if I could have said anything to that young woman, it would be, 
This path that you've been on the last year is actually who you are. Everything else that you try to do outside of that is going to make you sick and it's not going to work. And anything that you put between yourself and your your authentic self, you're going to lose. You're going to end up losing whatever it is that you put between yourself and who you actually are. Um, But I I could not possibly have known that then, but I fucking know it now. (laughs) And now it's like, no, the rest of my life will be a continuation of that journey. It cannot stop or I will not do well as an organism. That's how I have to live. As readers, though, we get to go on that journey with you. And if that book was different, you were that woman. And we identify with those lines too. And then as we get to read your work and you see the kind of walls being bashed through a bit, like even to end this book and go, the possibilities are so much bigger for these characters and for you and for us because we've read them. How do you create those boundaries for yourself? Is that easy because you know so easily kind of what's yours to share and what isn't? I don't have a boundary about it, which is to say I don't have any rules about it because I think those rules would fail. I can only follow my intuition and there are certain things every once in a while that I'm like, oh, kind of wish maybe I hadn't shared, <laughs> shared that. Oh, well, I did. And maybe there was a reason beyond my understanding of why it was important, why, okay, I might have taken a hit on that, but maybe it was incredibly important for somebody else that day to read that. So I'll, I'll take that hit. That's okay. I, I just, I can just say this, any talents that we have and do not use become burdens on our lives and burdens on our souls. I also think that any insights that we have and do not share become burdens on our souls. And I know this because the turnaround time for me in terms of the distance between when I figure something out that brings me closer to freedom or brings me closer to to mercy or understanding, the moment I get a piece of that, I get a piece of information about that that liberates me between when that happens and when I want to share it is a very small amount of time. Um, And it can truly start to feel like a burden if I've got that and I don't share it because I just know that we are here to let each other out of prison as much as we can. And anytime, and I've been so let out of prison so many times by people who were generous enough to share what had happened to them and what they learned from it publicly so that I got to get the tailwind of that lesson to apply to my own life. So that's, I guess I work by that metric too. Like, was this helpful to me? Well, then very quickly, you're going to be seeing it on Instagram or Facebook or in a book or in a speech. I'm going to try as best I can to get it out there. I know you wanted to talk about some of the books that you feel express female sexuality in a new and bold and kind of enriching way for us. So what are some of those that you've been reading um, there's three books that I would love to tell your readers about um, because I just love ballyhooing um, somebody else's work when I think they've really nailed it. I think the best book of 2019 is a book called Three Women by Lisa Tadeo. Um, I've never read anything quite like it. She's an extraordinarily 
brilliant and creative journalist who spent 10 years, I think, I may be wrong about that, but in a huge amount of time with these three women who had each had a an obsessive, passionate, sexual, romantic affair with somebody who they, or a way of acting out sexually that they could not control, um, that they could not control their desire to. And one was a, a a young girl who had who fell in love with her high school teacher, and they had a sexual relationship. One was um, a woman in a very stable, loveless, bloodless marriage who reconnects with her high school boyfriend and risks everything that she has to have whatever encounters with him she can have. And another is a is an affluent woman who has seems to have everything, kind of an Instagram worthy. Um, very successful woman who who whose husband likes to watch her have sex with other men and she likes it too. And that's how they solve the question of sex. And each one of them goes through tremendous desire, consequence. It is, I, I identified with every single one of these women in this book. And it's truly, I don't think I've ever read a book that's as honest and searching about female desire as this book is. So three women, I expect it to be talked about by everybody. I expect it. I expect it to win all of the awards this year and I will be angry if it doesn't. <laughs> so that's one of them. Another one is a, a book of essays called Black is the Body by Emily Bernard um, that are essays about her experience um, in this white culture and for her particularly white because she lives in Vermont and she teaches in Vermont, which is like the whitest place you can possibly be as an African-American woman. But it's also, in addition to that, um, just thoughtful, exquisitely beautifully written essays about female friendship and about marriage. Um, I think it's one of the greatest love stories I've read in a long time about her relationship with her husband and her children. Um, so Black is the Body, beautiful, beautiful. You can't write better essays than that. And another one, which is not about the female body, but about a male body. This is a book that's also unlike anything I've ever read. It's a memoir called Heavy by Kies Lehman. Good Lord, he's an African-American academic who grew up with a fascinating mother who was a PhD, who was brilliant, but they also had no money. So he he straddled this life of extreme poverty and extreme education. Um, these it's a very unusual background that he had, where there was there was he was drenched in in literature and political ideas and genius at the same time as you know barely being able to pay the electrical bill every month and. It's, and he's struggled with obesity. His mother has struggled with obesity. And he talks a lot about, you know, culture and diet and poverty and trauma and what simple carbohydrates and sugars have to do with the, the state of, of people who are oppressed and poor. And I've never read a man write about his, a straight man write about his body like this. My God, it's, I think that was the most beautiful book of last year. So the three books are Three Women, Black is the Body, and Heavy. Thank you, Liz. And I want to end with the epitaph of your book, which is, you will do foolish things, but do them with enthusiasm <laughs> by Colette. Okay. Let's, why was that so important? Oh God, I read that quote and I barked with laughter and I was like, and that's going to be what we put at the beginning of City of Girls. That's the spirit of the beginning of this novel is reckless behavior, bad behavior, foolish decisions, and so much enthusiasm. When we live in a moment of history right now, the Me Too movement is 
one of the most important things that I've seen happen in my lifetime as a feminist. And I'm delighted, delighted. It makes my blood run like a matador. I'm delighted to see that for the first time in my life, and maybe for the first time in Western history, the patriarchy is on the defensive as, as opposed to feminism being on the defensive. The patriarchy is on the run and it makes me so fucking happy and it is so important and there's so much muscle in it. And this is not a but because there's no but for me about the Me Too movement. I love it. And we have to be very cautious about, as women, not becoming so afraid that we stop living, pursuing, and taking risks. And I mean that emotionally, I mean that sexually, I mean that with intimacy. There's a slightly dangerous direction that we're moving in of the overprotection of the female body once more that I think we just have to be awake to. It's another reason why I'm sort of happy that this book is dropping right now in this particular moment. It's not a rebuttal to the Me Too movement. It's, it's in addition to it. Yes, yes, protect women's lives. Yes, yes, send the predators running. No, no, do not become so cautious that you've stopped doing foolish things. You have to do foolish and risky things in order to live fully as a human person and as a woman in a body that is full of desire and longing and yearning and there will be consequences and you can survive them. We all have. <laughs> Take this from an older woman who has been very seasoned and very bruised and very beaten down by life and very full of shame and very full of disasters and who still says risk, 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 risk or else you're not really fully here. Because what else is there but love? Well, I was about to say, what else is there but risk? <laughs> well, and I guess they're the same thing uh, yeah. because to love is always to risk. Always. Always, always, always. City of Girls is available now. There's a link to purchase on our website at lituppodcast.com. And you can learn more about Liz at elizabethgilbert.com. Lit Up is a podcast from Sugar23. It's hosted by me, Angela Ledgewood, and is produced by Liam Billingham. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. The theme music is by Andre Rodofsky. Please make sure to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. Until next time. Bye, everyone. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue. All in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.